Hi, this is Sebastian Satwi. I'm a rheumatologist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And today I'm going to be, you're going to be joining me for a QD clinic. And what better than a typical or a fun case in rheumatology than uh, a fear of unknown origin or FUO. Uh, as we always say, when there's a suspicion for FUO, you always get an infectious disease, a hematologist, and um, a rheumatologist. And this is the part that I think we, we are it's very important for our involvement in some of the cases that uh, we get consulted on. This can be certainly in the outpatient setting as well as in the inpatient setting. The patient that I'm gonna be talking about today was a patient that I saw in the hospital and she was, um, she was a 68 year old um, with really no significant medical history, maybe some mild hypertension and that was it. She had recently retired from work and, and, and she kept, which, in her job, she had a, it was a very busy kind of fast paced job. And she was, um, you know, completely independent, physically active. She powered walk five, five days a week without any issues. But one day that changed and she didn't feel like walking and she felt fatigued and she started running low grade fevers that were, you know, low 101 happening mostly on a daily basis. There was she was not having shortness of breath, was not having any rashes, was not having any headaches, was uh, not having any abdominal symptoms, any urinary symptoms. She was just running some uh, low-grade fevers and was having significant fatigue. And that's how she initially reported it. So that took her to her PCP, who started working her up. Um, there was some uh, mild anemia. There was some thrombocytosis in her initial labs. Elevated inflammatory markers, uh, but there was a concern for infection. Unclear necessarily why what that was brought up initially. Uh, you know, she had other extensive workup, but she ended up getting a um, a TTE, so an echo, which showed the possibility for you know some abnormality, possible you know calcification versus vegetation or aortic valve, uh, which raised the concern for the possibility of endocarditis, even though also in the outpatient setting, her blood cultures were negative. Um, she still continued to have fatigue, still low-grade fevers. And, you know, she ended up having initially CAT scans, which did not show anything else. Um, and she was not able to do the power walking as she usually did. She got a, ended up getting admitted to the hospital. And when while admitted to the hospital, the reason was, of course, the concern of uh, this possibility of, of a vegetation and subacute uh, bacterial endocarditis. Again, although her cultures were negative and she didn't have any kind of unusual exposures, no history of any, you know, dry use, no history of any weird traveling, and she um, re had a TEE, which just showed that it was some, you know, calcification. There was no concern for any vegetation. Blood cultures were negative as well. And while inpatient, she got a PET scan, which the PET scan did not show any significant abnormalities. Um, so she had seen ID, which ID said nothing. She had seen him on and had had some blood work and she also had a PET scan, which the PET scan did not show any abnormalities. Um, she had seen her primary care slash cardiologist who had admitted her hospital for the concern of a subacute uh, bacterial endocarditis. And so missing down the list was rheumatology. And while reading her note, there was already kind of some mention of, which had not necessarily been really paid too much attention to, about some aches and pains and some uh, 
myalgias, which were attributed to the fact that, well, maybe she's having fevers and possibly this case. Um, so um, one thing again, pos uh, which always we talk about GCA as a potential cause of an FUO, the PET scan did not show any uptake in any of the aorta of any of the major branches, which is somehow is reassuring for that. While walking in the room after knocking the door and going in, she was in her bed and I saw her stand up, which took her a while, took her a while even with help. Uh, and as a lot of patients with PMR usually relate to us, um, it's that night that you go to bed feeling fine. And that morning that you wake up that you cannot just stand up from your bed. So upon further questioning, uh, she was having significant shoulder pain and stiffness. Again, the typical thing which everyone describes, which is true and patients, you know, everyone assumes it's weakness, but it, if you really probe the patient, it's not weakness per se, it's pain what is driving the, the limitations in their upper extremities and lower extremities. Uh, significant prolonged stiffness. Uh, and again, this was someone who had a full-time busy job, who was used to having daily physical activity, who was at this point not being able to even stand up of her bed by herself. Um, her exam was you know, significant for the fact that she had decreased range of motion and pain palpation of her shoulder girdle, pain palpation of the lateral aspects of her hips, did not have any inflammatory um, findings on peripheral joints, pulses were symmetrical throughout, and fortunately, uh, you know, temporality was uh, palpable, there were no, no skull tenderness or any other kind of ischemic symptoms, and the diagnosis of concern um, was PMR, which, uh, as we have heard uh, in some of the TNRs, as um, spinach to Popeye, patient was feeling significantly improved by the next day after getting her first dose of steroids with at least a 50% improvement that continued to improve throughout the, the, the next few days. Um, this patient had had an extensive workup. To my, at that point, uh, there was no significant concern of, of, of any kind of uptake in the shoulder or pelvic girdle, but as this has been discussed also before, and there's growing evidence about the use of PET scan for the assessment of, particularly diagnostic assessment of PMR, we usually can also look for uptake in the shoulder uh, and pelvic girdle, as well as uh, in the interspinous processes in the spine, and also some distal um, uptake in, in hands. Uh, it was not necessarily the case for this patient, but she had a pretty significant res response to steroids with complete resolution of inflammatory markers, going back to her uh, functional uh, state and her daily activities without any issues. So again, uh, highlighting the, the, the fun cases that we sometimes get involved and the crucial impact that we can have for patients when just history taking can be very important and listening to, to patients and understanding the before and after, getting an idea of what is the change in daily activity, what are the symptoms, because it might not be the case that the patients necessarily tell us, I'm, I have stiffness and pain, and it might take them a while to really realize that, but that change in mobility, that change in, um, in their ability to go on with their daily activities in the context of, of low-grade fevers should always raise a concern for PMR as a cause of FEO. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this QD clinic. Hello again, this is Sebastian Satui. I'm a rheumatologist at, the, uh, at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And today I will be sharing a couple of cases actually for um, 
uh, acuity clinic. And these cases both have a bit of a similar um, kind of message to it when always thinking that not every pain in, the, in a patient with PMR is PMR. So the first case was a 78-year-old female who was diagnosed by uh, with PMR by her primary care physician. And this patient, uh, her presentation had been very classical based on, the, on what the records that I received with um, clear stiffness, prolonged stiffness, shoulder and pelvic girdle pain, and, you know, a, f a significant impact in her quality of, in her daily activities and the elevation of inflammatory markers, and then a very nice and brisk response to 20 milligrams of prednisone initially. This, um, while going down on the steroids, there were initially no issues, but when the patient got to a dose of around 10 milligrams daily, she started having significant pain in her left hip. Pain, which she also reported to be associated to stiffness and, and limiting her daily activities and initially felt similar to PMR pain. However, her, sh her shoulders that were not involved initially were not hurting. Uh, and her right hip was bothering some, but certainly was disproportionate. The left hip was the main issue. So in the initial um, concern of PMR, given that it felt like, smelled like uh, similar, steroids were increased again to 20 milligrams daily. And after a couple of days, there was no response in the symptoms whatsoever. Uh, after a couple of days of no response with 20 milligrams daily, and there are still the concern that this was PMR, the patient's steroids were increased to 30 milligrams daily, again, with no improvement. At that point, uh, there was a cons the, the clinical picture was not clear, and she was referred uh, to rheumatology to be seen and assessed. And again, there was no debate on the initial diagnosis of PMR, but clearly her symptoms this time were not um, significant. We're not really raising the concern for PMR, unilateral, no involvement of the shoulder, no, no response to even 30 milligrams of prednisone, which is usually, you know, above where we, where we tend to uh, we treat patients with PMR. And, um, and they, she had had an, an, an initially an x-ray that showed uh, no, no signs of anything else or any fracture, or just arthritis of her hips. But given the, the symptoms in the exam, uh, particularly the pain more anteriorly to her hip, not, not laterally, pain with internal, uh, and some pain with internal and external rotation as well, an MRI was done, which showed a pelvic fracture. Uh, she had not had any trauma, but she was also, um, hadn't had an exit in a few years, hadn't had, wasn't started on a bisphosphonate, and this was someone who had been on steroids for some time. Uh, patient had osteoporosis and had a pelvic fracture. And at that point, the decision was to, you know, keep going down on the steroids, given there was no evidence of PMR and orthopedics assessed the patient with the decision to just manage conservatively. Fortunately, while going down and all disease better being adequately controlled, steroids went down and uh, fracture healed. The second case is a patient who is a 72-year-old who had a diagnosis of PMR two years back. And 
again, classical presentation, 72-year-old who uh, presented with acute onset of shoulder and pelvic girdle symptoms, stiffness, elevated inflammatory markers, and a brisk response to steroids. She had some issues with the steroids, was not really happy with them, but they tapered them off. And in a matter of a year or so, she was discontinued of them. Um, she never felt that she went back to her baseline, which I think uh, was not really involved in physical therapy or any other activities. She's not necessarily a, an active a phys, uh, active person at the baseline with regards to you know physical activity or exercises. But um, she felt that, well, okay, this is what I was dealt with. But then six months after that, pain came back, but pain came back worse on her right shoulder, both shoulders, which again, she never felt that she went back to baseline initially after being tapered off. Um, but she felt clear before and after when starting treatment. Uh, but now her right shoulder was bothering significantly. Well, again, both of them were, but it was disproportionate on the right side. Um, there were no no uh, hip symptoms. There were no other constitutional symptoms. It was just persistent pain with stiffness just on the right side. Had an X-ray which did not show any abnormality except for mild, mild uh, arthritis. So the patient was seen in her office and they're concerned of like is this PMR again? Uh, and her inflammatory markers were normal, not that as we know necessarily excluded, but this was a patient who was six months off treatment as well, uh, but had persistent symptoms and she was very limited on her on, on particularly in her right shoulder, which was a dominant hand. So in that scenario, uh, especially because you know I don't the the lack of evidence of inflammatory disease was was on the lower side. Um, and there were typical features to her presentation, an X-ray, uh, and an X-ray had not shown necessarily anything. Her exam did raise a concern for some rotator cuff disease, but at that point, the decision was to get an MRI. And what the MRI showed was, uh, it did not show any bursitis, didn't show any acutitis, but showed a high-grade partial thickness or, um, pairing of the subscapularis, also uh, some high, great partial thickness uh, tear of the supra and infraspinatus, some labral disease as well, and some mild tendinosis. There were no real inflammatory features. The, 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 these findings on MRI were way more pronounced on the right side. Again, the, the, the full thickness tear of the subscapularis and the high-grade partial thickness tear uh, of the other components of the rotator cuff were uh, actually on the right side as well. And without any other inflammatory findings, neither on ex on her history, neither on her inflammatory markers, and neither on her um, MRI, she the decision was to treat symptomatically, to send for physical therapy, uh, also assessment orthopedics, and the decision was again to proceed conservatively, um, and and without any concern for active disease. We uh, I've kind of touched a little bit on base of like one the scenarios were. Um, Imaging is important. We know that, uh, and we have heard about this, that ultra, both ultrasound, both uh, uh, MRIs, and nowadays also PET scans can be useful for the diagnosis of PMR. The role in monitoring is still not um, established yet, but it's also important because it can allow us to better assess the patient and rule out any other causes because not everything that hurts is PMR. Um, whether it's a fracture, whether it's some other kind of uh, soft tissue 
condition that can be leading or mimicking symptoms. Uh, again, again, the other feature that was persist uh, also common between those two patients was the asymmetry and some, again, a, not, not the classical picture that we were concerned for a, a relapse of disease in patients with PMR. So I hope you've enjoyed both of these cases and thank you again for listening. Welcome to QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic this month is sponsored by Sanofi. We're talking about PMR, make room for PMR. I want to give you a QD Clinic on what I think are the lessons I've heard by listening to the Tuesday night rheumatology sessions every Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Um, you know, one hour webinars where we've had the best of folks talking about diagnosis, steroids, steroid sparing, and next week talking about controversies. Um, here are some top lessons that I've learned. I want to begin with um, Stephen Paget's wonderful quote from the first TNR, which was giving steroids to PMR is like giving spinach to Popeye. I thought it was brilliant, and it's so true. You know, I've given steroids to PMR patients. They come back, they want to just hug me, kiss me. I mean, they're just so quickly happy and dramatically better. But the point about that is it's memorable, it's impactful, but you know what? It doesn't make the criterion for diagnosis. When the ACR and ULAR folks in 2015 were devising their um, guidelines and criteria, they, they considered this, but they found it to be a subjective, unquantifiable, and therefore unmeasurable um, tool um, that you could not ascribe a predictive value to. Everyone agreed it's something we like to see. Uh, at the same time, it's not always seen, and not seeing it really shouldn't exclude the diagnosis. Number two comes from... Um, Richard Conway, who in our steroids and PMR discussion, there was a lot of talk amongst our great panelists about the variety of weaning regimens um, with steroids. And it's kind of all over the map, I must say. It's probably shorter than you think. It's only a few weeks at each dose, not a few months. Um, Everyone seems to agree. 15 milligrams is the starting dose. Some people like 12.5, but generally 15. And I like Richard's, you know, make it easy for the patient. Let's make changes in monthly increments. 15 milligrams a month, then 12.5 for a month, then 10 for a month. And then after that, you're going to decide if it's 2.5 a month or 1 milligram a month um, to take them down. It really makes the most amount of steps and I think that that I thought was smart. The question is next, when would you use a steroid sparing agent? And I think everyone sort of agreed on two parameters. One, two attempts at steroid weaning that were unsuccessful. And the second, the need for higher than expected doses of steroids. Because that just portends a long, prolonged course doses you don't want, steroid effects you don't want to live with. Second issue on steroid sparing drugs is that you, the rheumatologist, and the panelists all agree, almost like 95% of the time, if you're going to use a steroid sparing drug, start with methotrexate. We had some discussion about leflunamide, no concrete data, this trial and process. 
But we do have new drugs. Um, Cerilumab and IL-6 inhibitors approved. Most really felt you should go through methotrexate before you went to Cerilumab. That's, I think, a smart issue. The next issue I thought was when would you do, we heard, when would you do imaging and PMR? You know, imaging is part of the diagnosis for GCA, but not necessarily required for PMR. But when would you do imaging? And I think that we heard when it's atypical cases or when there's a GCA-like symptomatology, jaw claudication, ischemic symptoms like vision, weight loss, FUO, you know, these are the sort of things. And my last takeaway that I learned this month from listening to Tuesday Night Rheumatology was sed rate and CRP. You know what? Not always elevated. And if not elevated, doesn't exclude the diagnosis. But it doesn't let you get away with an easier diagnosis either. Now you got to double down on all the other features that need to be characteristic and requisite. Or now go a step further and start doing imaging, right? Doing imaging of the shoulders and the hips, maybe even doing imaging of the temporal arteries. But the idea is that sed rate and CRP can still be normal or lowish and make a diagnosis, but you need to be certain by all other parameters. That's it for QD Clinic. Tune in for more of these throughout the month.